Hello and welcome to the Harvest Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We are honored that you would click on this and listen to God's Word preached by one of our elders. At the same time, we strongly affirm the biblical mandate for Christians to be a faithfully active and in-person part of their local church. This sermon cannot and will not replace what a local church can provide to the life of a Christian. That being said, we hope that this sermon challenges and encourages you in your faith and that it builds upon the faithful ministry of your local church. We hope that you enjoy. God bless. Give your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Writer says this, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not Know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the testimony of John. God, I pray that this morning as we look at the words of your scripture, God, that we would clearly see God who exactly Jesus is, and God, that we would better worship him and better testify of his presence, God, in our world today. God, thank you for all you've done for us. Praise your name. Amen. This morning, I want us to see three very quick things as we look at this passage of scripture. The first is the testimony of the authority of Jesus from John the Baptist. The second is the testimony of the mission of Jesus from John the Baptist. And the third is the testimony to the identity of of Jesus from John the Baptist. As I said, we're going to start with the testimony of the authority 
of Jesus. When you look at this passage, it's very interesting that John is confronted by these Jewish leaders. These Jewish men come to him and ask him a question, not about Jesus's identity, but about his identity. They ask him, John, who are you? You might ask yourself, why are they so concerned about John? Well, we know from history and looking at what all happened and some of the outside sources from the Bible that John had become a very influential person. He had many followers. He was making a lot of waves and a lot of impact in the area surrounding Jerusalem. And the uh, issue that the Jewish leaders have is that John is baptizing based on repentance into this new kingdom under this new Messiah that he is heralding. This new kingdom that he is heralding isn't the Jewish kingdom. It's a different kingdom. He's asking people to repent and be baptized and enter into this kingdom of God. And to the Jewish leaders, they're thinking, wait a second. We're Israel. We're the kingdom of God. What are you doing starting this other kingdom? And so they send people to ask him what he's up to. It wasn't necessarily the baptism in particular that they were concerned with. Baptism was a popular cultural activity in that time. Some sects practice uh, proselyte baptism. When converts were made, they would be baptized. And um, monastic Jews practiced daily baptism. They read Ezekiel 36, and they would uh, daily go down to the water and dunk themselves in the water. And that was uh, distinctive there that they dunk themselves. Uh, it's distinct from the way that we baptize. In this day, before Jesus, baptism was a self-baptism. You did it yourself. You walk down. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the little kid. He gets saved, and uh, I guess it's his dad or the preacher. I think his dad is the preacher, but his preacher's in the baptismal pool with him, and the, he keeps talking and talking and talking, and the kid's standing there, and he's getting antsy, and he says, I'll just forget it, and he dunks himself. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, that, that's how they baptized back then. They just kind of dunk themselves. And so here comes John baptizing these people, not based on their ethnicity, not based on who their parents were, not based on what family they're from, not based on how much they followed the law, but baptizing them based on their repentance and their following into this new kingdom. This is a cultural problem. This is a, a, a big red light, a big concern, red flag for the Jewish leaders. So they come to him and they say, who are you? And why are you doing this? These are the two questions that you see in the text. Again, remember that these people would baptize themselves in this day. They wouldn't be baptized by someone. But the fact that John was baptizing them communicated that he had some sort of authority, that he had some reason or some uh, authority by which he could baptize other people. So this was another point of concern that the Jews had. I think in looking at the exchange that we have, we can learn a few quick things. Let's read, read it again, starting in verse number 19. When the Jews uh, sent the priests and Levites in, uh, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That's the first question they ask. Who are you? John here, I think, understands the question, and he confesses. Um, and the, the ESV puts it, he confessed and did not cannot deny, but confessed. And the, the original Jewish language there, the, the language that that's trying to communicate is, is that he freely confessed this. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. He gladly and openly confessed what he is about to say. He said, I am not the Christ. They didn't ask him if he was the Christ, but he just openly gives it to him. He says, I know this is what you're looking for. You're looking for me to say I'm the Christ. And in this day, there were many. Josephus, the historian, tells us that there were many, many, many men in the time between uh, the Testaments that 
would rise up and say they'd be the Messiah, and they would even amass for themselves little militias and rise up. And at one point, there was one that even killed 40 Roman soldiers and took a bunch of weapons. I mean, it was a huge deal. People were pretending to be the Messiah. And John the Baptist here, perceiving that this is what they're concerned about, he says, listen, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the guy you're concerned about. Well, they continue asking questions. They asked him. Sorry, I skipped down too far. And uh, in verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, this is a seemingly odd question if you don't know your Bible too well. I'll admit it was an odd question to me. But when you go back and you study the Old Testament and you get to uh, Malachi and the end of Malachi in chapter 4, in fact, if you'll flip there with me, I think it'll help you. Just flip back to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book other than Nehemiah that is given to us in the Bible. It's the last prophetic book in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament, rather, before Jesus comes. In Malachi chapter 4, Malachi says this, For for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will stubble, or will be stubble, that the day that is coming shall... Set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, fear my name. The sun of of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall not go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I will act, says the Lord of hosts." Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Herob and for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction." We see here that uh, the the prophet Malachi is saying that what's going to happen before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes, is that Elijah will be sent back. This is a big prophecy. Remember, this is the last prophetic word that Israel receives for 400 years. It's the last words they have from God to hold on to. Imagine that. Imagine that your family 400 years ago was given a promise by God that he was going to send Elijah or one of your ancestors to come and make everything right before this great person comes and fixes all the family problems. This is a big deal. The the Jews here were anticipating this Elijah figure. They were holding on to it, waiting for this Elijah figure to show up because they knew that when Elijah showed up, their deliverance was coming soon. And so when uh, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and these Jewish leaders go to him and they ask him, who are you? And he says, well, I'm not the Christ. The next logical question for them to ask is, okay, well, if you're not the Christ, are you the one who's coming before the Christ, Elijah? Well, John the Baptist, if we go and read the other, uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. He says uh, that John the Baptist did fulfill this prophecy, but here John the Baptist doesn't seem to understand this. John the Baptist doesn't seem to understand that he is this figure. He doesn't seem to grasp the fact that this is the role that he's playing. Possibly it's just humility. And he says, 
you know what? I'm not really that great. I'm not this great prophet. I'm just here doing my job. But nevertheless, when they asked him, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Then they ask a third question. Are you the prophet? Again, kind of a seemingly odd question, but if you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promises Israel that he will send them a prophet like Moses that will come and uh, take care of everything and make things better. And so they're asking him this question. They're asking him really the same question in three different ways. They're asking him, hey, are you associated in any way with this Messiah guy? Because we know that there's one coming who is going to make everything better for us. Again, John answers no. In verse 22, we start to get the sense of urgency from the Jews here that are asking him this question. They say, so who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You get a sense here that the people who sent them, the the religious elite in Israel are really, really wanting to know what is going on with this John figure. Why is this person going around heralding the good news of this new kingdom, saying that this new Messiah is coming, and then baptizing them based on repentance and not based on their heritage, and creating all this ruckus and stirring up all this commotion? They want to know what's going on. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Here we see that John the Baptist understands that he does play a role in the picture of Old Testament prophecy. We see that John the Baptist very clearly understands that he does play some sort of a role in this picture. And while he might not understand that he's Isaiah from Malachi, but he does understand that he is the person who is to call out in the wilderness and say, make straight the way of the Lord. If you flip with me over to Isaiah 40, I think it's worth looking at a few things in that passage as we move through our text this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. It's a fascinating prophecy. Israel has been in, excuse me, Israel has been in exile for many years. And the prophet says this to Israel, starting in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go down to verse 9. Go up 
on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It's a fascinating prophecy here. As Isaiah is prophesying this to Israel, what is practically taking place is he's commanding them to go out and to literally make the desert flat to prepare the way for them to return to the promised land. The roads practically were in disrepair. This is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. Isaiah is saying, listen, how are we going to get home, guys? We're here in Babylon. How how are we going to get back? The roads are all messed up. We can't get back. And so to Israel, they thought, okay, well, we just got to go Make the roads. We'll turn the pages a few hundred years. And here you have John the Baptist saying that he is the one that was being spoken of in that passage. How is that? Well, a lot of times in the Bible when prophecies happen, especially in the book of Isaiah, we see dual fulfillment of prophecy. We see an immediate fulfillment and we see a long-term fulfillment. Now, this doesn't always happen and we have to be careful with this. You can't assume that every prophecy is to be taken this way. You must first look at the Bible and say, okay, is this prophecy fulfilled and explicitly fulfilled somewhere else? Does the Bible say, hey, by the way, this verse, what's happening here, was talked about in Isaiah? Well, if that happens, well, then great. We can say, sure, this is a dual fulfillment. This is an example of where God spoke this to Israel, meant it to Israel, fulfilled it with Israel. Israel went home from Babylon. They went home back to the promised land after exile. Historically happened. The Bible records it. But we can't stop there in our understanding of this text. This text is saying something more. And I hope to your New Testament Christian ears, as we were reading about this Messiah that would tend to his flock with a mighty arm and that would rule the nations, I hope you hear hear that and understand that this is the message that John is heralding. This is the message. This is why the Jews are, are confused. This is why they're almost anxious a little bit because they're wondering what's about to happen. He's heralding the good news of this promised one in Isaiah who's coming. He's talking about, uh, you know, these things that make him seem like he's maybe Elijah or somebody like that. But not only that, but John the Baptist finds himself in a situation much like the prophet Isaiah found himself in the book of Isaiah when he prophesies this. Israel had been in exile. The people of God were not in their home. They were not where they were supposed to be. And they needed a way prepared for them for the Lord to come and to bring them home to his kingdom. In John's time, like I said earlier, it had been 400 years since the prophets had spoken. It had been 400 years since they had heard a word from God. Think about that. This nation who had regularly and deeply and thoroughly heard from God throughout their history, all of a sudden, 400 years, nothing. I I don't know about you, but when Emily doesn't text me back for 30 minutes, I start worrying about her. Like, where is she at? We can't can't have that. We, We get impatient. Imagine 400 years of nothing. 400 years. Hadn't heard a thing. Think they kind of felt like God had forgotten about them? 
Maybe like Israel had felt like they'd been forgotten when they were in exile. Not only that, but in the 400 years since uh, the Old Testament, the Greeks have come in and raided Israel and desecrated the temple and the Maccabean family revolts and restores uh, Jews to religious leadership. And by the time Jesus is born, the supposed kingdom of God on earth, Israel, is led by the descendant of Esau, Herod. It's not a descendant of Jacob, it's a descendant of Esau. And the priests are no longer descendants of Levi. So both the uh, government and the church or the temple are both completely out of whack in John the Baptist's time. Both these institutions, which were given by God to Israel for the purpose of keeping them in line and making sure that they worship God rightly, both of these institutions are twisted and turned on their head. They might as well have been exiled. The religious leaders of the day were divided. There was a liberal wing, the Sadducees, that loved the Greeks and the Romans. They loved the culture of the day. And they did not hold to scriptural authority in any meaningful way. Really, the only five books they cared about were the first five. And if you know anything about uh, the way that uh, Jews and um, rabbis interpret scripture, it's very liberal, very allegorical, very uh, not holding to authority the way that we would as Christians today. It was split between that group and a hyper-conservative group called the Pharisees that were more concerned with control than leading God's people in right living and right worship of God. Many false messiahs, which we've talked about already, Josephus mentions, Israel is looking all over the place, looking for some semblance of light. And in the middle of this, Israel is no longer a holy nation. Israel is no longer the representation of God on earth. They've become so far removed from the design that God had for them that they are almost unrecognizable and, as I said, might as well have been in exile. But here comes John. Make way. The Lord is coming. John's job is thus very similar to the prophets of the Old Testament, much similar to the job of Elijah. It's to call Israel to repent and return to the right worship of God and prepare them for the coming of the Lord. John says this in answering the Jewish leaders. He says, this is my job. I, I am the one who's calling out saying that the Messiah is coming. You can see how that might have even been taken as a slap in the face to those religious leaders because they're probably sitting there thinking, well, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, right? Well, we're, we're doing the right thing. They're still not satisfied with what's happening and they still want to know more about what John is doing. Verse 24, story picks up and says this. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Here's the, here's the point of their questioning. Why are you baptizing? Why are you doing what you're doing? On what authority do you stand? If you say that you are not the Christ, if you say that you're not Elijah, if you say you're not a prophet, then what business do you have going around and telling people to repent and to turn to this kingdom that's coming? It's a fair question. John answers them. 
I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't even know. Even one who comes after me, the strap whose sandal I am not unworthy. I am not worthy to untie. John here very clearly points not to his own authority. He doesn't go around and say, well, God sent me to do this. He could have rightly done that, right? God called John the Baptist to do this. He could have said, well, God, the one you worship, the Father, the one we all agree on his shoes, he sent me, I'm here doing this on his authority. He could have certainly done that. He doesn't do that though. What does he say? He does what John the Baptist consistently does throughout his entire ministry, and that is does exactly what he's supposed to do, and that is not point to himself, but points to Jesus. John reveals that the one whose authority he stands on is one whose sandal he is not even worthy to untie. This is one who is so great that John sees himself as so unworthy that he couldn't even do the job that the least slave of the house would normally do. The least slave of the house was the one who would come when the master got home and take off his sandals, wash his feet. And John here says, listen, the one whose authority I'm standing on, the one whose authority you're questioning me about, I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. That's how awesome this guy is. That's how authoritative this guy is. That's how in charge this guy is. John, throughout this exchange, shows immense humility. John has many followers. He is very influential. In fact, he's so influential, like we said earlier, that the religious leaders have come to question him. And this is an important lesson for us, I think, that we need to remember. In the middle of his success, in the middle of his growth, in the middle of his ministry seeming like it was going well, he still sees Jesus as greater. John had every opportunity in this exchange just to go, God sent me. I'm the one. I'm the guy. Look at all my followers. Why are you questioning me? We're just going to beat you up like all the other false messiahs did. That's not what John does. John says... There's one coming who's greater than I am. And that's why I'm here. And so through the questioning of John's authority, John points to the authority and greatness of Jesus. May we do the same. When people come to us and question us, why do you do what you do? Why do you say the things you say? Why do you act the way you act? Why do you not do the things you don't do? May we be humble enough to remember that we were once sinners too and say, because my God is greater. I don't do this because I read my Bible. I don't do this because I pray. I don't do this because I go to church. I don't do this because I'm a Christian. I do this because my God is greater and he has done a work in my life. The next thing John the Baptist is encountered with and the next thing we'll see in the scripture is the mission of Jesus. It's an interesting passage here. We get a consecutive three days that will be told, and the story will be continued next week, Lord willing. But it's one of the only times in the Gospel of John where we have a consecutive story like this, and this story will build up to the wedding feast. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me, I myself did not know him for this purpose. I came baptizing with water uh, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John starts this interaction. He's just kind of minding his own business and you get the picture that he's kind of out in the streets of the town and Jesus starts coming towards him. And John, in the middle of the street, says this, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This should get us all excited, especially after uh, the passage that we were talking about earlier in Revelation chapter 5. We all know how the Lamb of God story culminates, and, and we'll go there in the sermon here in just a second. But first, I think we need to understand what John understood it to mean that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Certainly, we know from the story of John the Baptist that he probably didn't understand the Lamb of God the way that you and I understand the Lamb of God. If you don't believe me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist finds himself in prison, nearing the end of his life when he'll be crucified. And he has some doubts, as I think many of us would. Starting in verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in, the, in their cities. Now when John heard in the prison about the deeds of Christ, he went by word uh he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John here hears about all that Jesus is doing, probably hears about some of the conflict that Jesus is running into, starts to hear the message of Jesus that he's going to be this suffering lamb, that he's going to be this one who dies for the sins of his people. He's not going to come in and usher this new kingdom on earth like so many of the day thought he would. John hears this and goes, wait a second. You're going to die? Well, I thought you were the... You mean you're going to suffer? John is worried. John is scared. He's about to lose his life for this man. And he has doubts. In that day, like I said, it wasn't uncommon that John would feel the way he does. In fact, there's many extra biblical Jewish sources. Uh, the story of, uh, I'm sorry, the testimony of Benjamin, the testimony of Joseph, to name a couple. Uh, Second Enoch also mentions it, uh, where it talks about a warrior lamb. This is kind of foreign language to us as uh, New Testament Christians. Uh, we kind of can put those pieces together that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. But these sources actually put these two together. In fact, I believe it's the testimony of Joseph actually talks about a lamb that's like a lion. And the lamb is standing out in a field and there's deer all over the place. And the deer attack the lamb, but the lamb overcomes the deer. 
It's an interesting story, but it's painting the picture of this Messiah who's going to come and take over the area and, uh, and free Israel from all of their political enemies and their national enemies and all this. And so John, as he's saying this, he's probably thinking something like this. However, we know that John the Apostle includes this in his, uh, in his version of the, the gospel account. So we can also know that John is not saying that the Baptist, John the Baptist is not necessarily wrong. This is from D.A. Carson. But John remembers that John the Baptist had said this and more fully understands and appreciates it in light of the now ascended Savior. Even though John probably had an imperfect understanding of this for most of his life, even he, when he said, behold the Lamb of God, he didn't understand it maybe the way that we would understand it. He had a maybe imperfect or slightly Judaized version of what that meant in his head. Even though all that might be true, John the Apostle includes this in his gospel because looking back, he can go, you know what? He was right. This was the Lamb of God. This was the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world. Look with me in Matthew chapter 16. John the Baptist isn't alone in this confusion. Very famously, Peter in this passage, starting in verse 13, says this, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea at Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That language should be very familiar to you now. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This rock being that confession. On this rock, that rock is what he has just said. On the confession that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And Peter the same one who just said, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, you're the one who the Old Testament was talking about. The same guy who just said that took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But then he turns to Peter, Jesus, and says, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Hope you see that it was a very common understanding here that this Messiah would come and conquer. Even the apostle Peter, who'd followed Jesus. John the Baptist kind of goes off and does his own thing, does his own ministry, kind of points people to Jesus as Jesus is going around. Excuse me, sorry about that. 
And as he's going around, he points people to Jesus, but Peter was right there with him, and even he is guilty of this same confusion. But what is the Lamb of God? What does it mean when Peter, or when John the Baptist rather says, and John the Apostle will later say in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Well, we know two stories back in the Old Testament point to this. Genesis chapter 22, story between Abraham and Isaac. You remember they get to the mountain and Abraham says, where's the sacrifice? Where is the lamb? And God says, I will provide one for you that will cover your sins. That's the first time we see this picture. And then you continue over into Exodus chapter 12 and you have the Passover, the first time the Passover happens. And they had to have a spotless lamb to cover the doorposts in blood so that the uh, ghost, uh, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come in and kill their firstborn like he would uh, the rest of the children of Egypt. Excuse me. This lamb, if you continue throughout the story of the Old Testament, the spotless lamb had to be a lamb that was spotless by nature. He didn't have any birth defects. He had to be spotless in his uh, life. He couldn't have any kind of deformities or any kind of injuries or, uh, you know, marks on him or anything like that. He had to be a perfectly spotless lamb. They would go to great lengths to protect this lamb before the sacrifice. And this lamb was a substitutionary lamb. This was a lamb that would be sacrificed in the case of chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. This lamb was killed so that the family would be saved. A lamb in the place of sinners. Well, again, to our New Testament ears, that should sound familiar. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and take, break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to him, Weep no hope more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It's very Jewish language. It's the kind of language John the Baptist would have been pumped about. John would have been jumping out of his shoes over this. Like, yes, that's the guy I'm looking for. And then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and which are the seven spirits of God sent out the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, and uh, which are the prayers of the saints, in which they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. The lamb was worthy not because he was a mighty lion, but because he was a suffering lamb. Because he died a substitutionary death. He was a spotless lamb by nature. He wasn't born like you or I were born. He was born of the spirit by woman, by a virgin. He was spotless in his life. He didn't have any marks or blemishes like you and I do. He died a substitutionary death, a lamb. For a people. 
John the Baptist here knowingly or unknowingly identifies that Jesus is this lamb. Jesus is a lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Finally, John, in this exchange, reveals in his testimony, points to the identity of Jesus. There's three things very quickly that John points to. He says that he is preeminent and most excellent. Let me get back to the passage. I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John here echoes the language of the prologue that John has just got done writing that we've talked about the last three weeks. You go to Colossians 1.15 and very famously uh, the apostle P, or Paul rather says, Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. John the Baptist here proclaims that identity of Jesus. He says that Jesus is this preeminent one. He is the creator. He was before me, and because he was before me, he is greater than me. Not only is he preeminent and most excellent, but he is God-confirmed and spirit-giving. John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that being God, sent me to baptize with water, said to me, uh, when he, uh, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John here says, listen, not only is he before me, not as he more excellent than me, but I saw God confirm that this guy's the one. I saw it with my eyes. John MacArthur, in his sermon on uh, the account of John's baptism of Jesus uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, he talks about how many of us think about the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, and we think about the little birdie flying down. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. No, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. It descends upon Jesus. It floats down like a dove would. It comes down and lands on Jesus and rests Upon him, and John says here that God had told him that whoever that happens to, he is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. This is good news, by the way, especially in the realm of baptism. Remember earlier we talked about how there was a sect of monastic Jews who had baptized themselves because of Ezekiel 36. By the way, Ezekiel 36 also foretells that there will be one who comes and gives the Spirit. It's the fulfillment of this passage. John here is saying that, that there's one who's coming after him, that this Jesus guy who he's talking about, this Lamb of God is coming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, that he's going to give his spirit to his people. What is John's conclusion of all this? Verse 34. John says this, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Both of those uh, verbs there, seen and borne witness, they're in what's known as the perfect tense. There's no more emphatic way of saying this. He's saying, it happened, and I know it. 
This is a seemingly odd transition after our prologue. You have the prologue, which is a very deep and technical theological passage, and you jump into the narrative right away. And it's not even a narrative about the word that we read about in the prologue. It's about this other character, John, who is mentioned in the prologue. So why does John the Baptist, or why does John the Apostle, rather, start here? Well, when you continue reading in the Gospel of John, and we'll get there, chapter 21, verse 31, John reveals his point as to why he's writing this book. He's writing this book that the reader might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's writing this to convince people. He's presenting a court case, if you will, of evidence and facts that say this guy, Jesus, this man who walked on the earth, is the Christ. And so John starts with the one who came before the Christ, the one who came like Elijah to point and make the way for him because he is a firsthand witness of not only the fact that Jesus had done many great things, but that Jesus was confirmed by God the Father and the Holy Spirit to be a part of the Trinity. What better argument for Jesus being the Messiah is there than that? John starts with his biggest punch. He says, I don't have anything better than this. He says, John the Baptist, this guy, he testified, he came, he prepared the way of the Lord, he did what he was supposed to do, and he said, I saw God confirm that Jesus was his son. What more evidence do you need than that? But what can we learn from this passage? Well, we learn certainly a lot about the person of Jesus, which we've talked about. But I think we can learn a lot about what it means to witness today. What it means to have a testimony today. So many testimonies today are focused on what happened to me. Or what I've done. Never once in this passage do you hear John saying that. Instead, John points to Jesus and Jesus alone as the authority on which he stands. John had every reason, as we've discussed, not to do this. Many others, as we've discussed, have used, uh, were using their platform to obtain a following and to give them power, even to the point of having military power. And in the verses we'll read next Sunday, we see that John does the exact opposite of this. He doesn't try to build a following, but rather he takes his followers and say, why are you standing here with me? He's the guy. May we be people that not point people or that don't point people to ourselves, but point people to Jesus. May we also be people that stay on mission, even at the expense of a platform. And lastly, let's go back to John chapter 1. Starting in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came there to his own, and 
his own uh, and his own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him believed in his name, and he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, it wasn't because of their family, nor of the will of the flesh, it wasn't because they wanted it, nor the will of man, it wasn't because they thought hard about it, but of God. Dear friends, if you find yourself born again this morning, if you find yourself with new desires, new passions, desires for the things of God, desiring to want to know God more, remember that that's not of you. And remember that it is your job to point people to the light that God gave to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for John. God, thank you for his example to us. God, thank you, God, for just a, an example of someone who had every excuse, God, to, to build a name for himself, God, to build uh, a kingdom for himself, God, but who consistently stayed on mission for your kingdom and your name. God, thank you that John so clearly evidenced and, and witnessed for us the person of Jesus. God, I pray that this morning, God, that his testimony would cause us to just want to worship you the, the Lamb of God, God, the preeminent one, all the more this morning as we leave this place. God, I pray that as we go out into our different jobs and spheres this week, God, that we would be faithful to bear witness about the light that has been given to us, that came before us, God, and that has been put inside of us. God, I pray that we would know, God, that people are not going to like the light, that people are going to reject the light, but God, that you are the light nevertheless, and you've called us to show your light nevertheless. And God, I pray that whether that brings success or failure, God, whether that brings thousands of more years to Harvest Baptist Church or two more months, God, that we would worship your name. Praise in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website, harvestbc.church. If you would like to contact us, please email us at contact.harvestbc at gmail.com or you can call us at 706-780-2211. If you are looking for a church home or visiting the North Georgia area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday morning. 9.30 in the Fellowship Hall for breakfast and Sunday school, and then at 11 a.m. for our Lord's Day worship service. We hope that you have a great week. God bless.